are <coughs> going, <coughs> excuse me, we're going through 1 Samuel. <coughs> so find 1 Samuel 24 in your Bibles. 1 Samuel 24. I know some of you use Bibles and some of you use phone and some of you use iPads and some of you have memorized the whole Bible. 1 Samuel 24, and here's the title of my sermon. Don't cut corners when you're in the outhouse. All right? In the old days, I used to have a hard time coming up with titles for sermons. But for some reason, the last 10 years, I've, I'm like, wow, the title is so obvious what it should be. Don't, don't cut corners in the outhouse. So... Let's review. King Saul hates David because, you know, the, the prophet Samuel said to King Saul, God has rejected you from being king because you disobey the Lord. You don't follow his commands. And, and I think King Saul kind of intuitively knows that David is going to become the next king. Samuel anointed David. And the Lord is with David. David is 25 years old. He will become king when he is 30 years old. I think that's in 2 Samuel chapter 4. So, but he's about 25 years old. Saul's out to kill him. Last week we talked about King David ran off to his man cave, the cave of Adullam. 400 other men have gone to him. And uh, they've joined up with him, their wives, their kids. And we'll talk more about them in the future. And so, and then David was told to leave the cave, and he probably took his 400 men, and he's, he's actually going out fighting the enemy, the Philistines. David is not fighting King Saul, but King Saul is after David to kill him. So let's pick up in 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able, and I thought this is interesting that it's in the Bible. 3,000, what kind of men? Does it say children? Oh, chosen, okay. Does it say young men? Yeah, I was thinking uh, wars are fought by, <clears throat> fought by older men that are the leaders who, I don't know, get the younger men to fight the wars. So I, I don't know if it's because they're strong and agile or whether they just don't know any better. I don't. But I, I feel bad. Wars are often fought by young men. So he gets 3,000 of them and they're heading out to fight David. And I'm sure David and the men with him are probably young too. And his men near the crags of the wild goats. Verse 3. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. That's, he's using it as an outhouse. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, oh, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and then he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. 
Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. All right, so let's stop there for a second. Don't lose 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel there, 24. So let's, uh, first of all, Israel has lots of caves. And these are some actual pictures of the caves over in Israel. In fact, some of the caves in history have hidden up to 30,000 people in these caves. So David, whether David and his men saw King Saul coming with his troops, David said, let's, let's go quick, hide in this cave. And so they're hiding inside the cave when Saul decides, I need a bathroom. And goes into the same cave that the men are hiding in. All right? So just different caves here. And Saul's going to use that cave as a, um, an outhouse. Now this, this is interesting. I was talking to my mother. My mother was born on a farm that my grandparents owned. And my mother actually comes to the 8 o'clock service online, and she only lives a couple miles away from the actual farm that she was born on. And she was telling me it wasn't until she was 13 years old before they even got electric. And I'm like, it's hard for me to fathom people alive today in the United States that did not have electric, okay? So at 13, they bring in the poles and they get electric. And she said, my family didn't know what to do with it. So they put in three light bulbs in the kitchen, up the top of the steps, and in the living room. No outlets. And she says, we didn't have anything to plug in. Who needed an outlet? I mean, what plugged in back in those days? And my mother said, which I knew, because my grandparents had the outhouse that just looked just like this. This is not a picture of it, but it was a double-seater like that. And my grandparents had an, an outhouse until I was like about 10 years old. And I, I loved visiting my grandparents, but this was not my favorite thing. And I could not figure out why there were two holes in the outhouse. And I think it was like, well, in the wintertime, you want to take a buddy with you to keep warm out in that outhouse. Or... So, and then I, so at about 10 years old, my grandparents finally got indoor plumbing, which I was very happy for. Okay. So I surveyed the people. How many people here grew up and you had an outhouse when you were a kid? Raise your hand. All right. So, uh, about eight of you. In the first service, it was like three quarters of them. I was like, wow, um, amazing. So we, we were making fun of Earl, Earl Forsyth. Is Earl here? Earl, where, Earl, come on, stand up. Earl just turned 95 this last week. Yeah. <laughs> we're looking to celebrate your 105. When you hit 105, Earl. Earl has gone, and he, he gave me all the ins and outs of outhouse management. And he was like, the worst part was digging the five-foot hole. And so it's just interesting. And so, but I was thinking, realize what Earl has lived through in 95 years? I mean, every invention and thing that's happened. So 
Keep outhouse in mind. I'm going to skip. I, I was, I'll tell you my story. These are actual pictures from me. For one week, I was in Mongolia. This was about 13 years ago to do a training with pastors over there for a week. The people, they don't live in the buildings. That's where the animals live. The people live in those white tents with the, with the smokestack sticking out of it. That's their heating system that they put coal in. And uh, they're called yurts or gears. Okay. And that's the outhouse. They all had outhouses, which I was like, oh, no, I'm here for a week. Here's the public outhouse we had to use. Okay. Now, this is the public outhouse. There's no doors. So as you walk by, you go, oh, oh sorry. Uh, okay. Um, now, I'm, I'm stepping big like this on purpose because this is... So they just take the board out. So as you're walking, you, gotta, you don't want to fall in. You, you walk, and then you look in to see if there's anyone in there, and then you, you, know, you can figure it out from there. So I was like, ugh. All right. Oh, by the way, here's the modern-day outhouse. Okay? Lest you think. So those of you that raise your hand, like, oh, I've never had an outhouse. Come on. There it is, right there. Interesting enough, David was hiding in a cave. And just so everyone knows this, we believe that Jesus may have been born in a cave in Bethlehem. Um, the early church fathers, and that's, you go down those steps to a cave, which today is marked as where Jesus was born. The early church fathers wrote about Jesus being born in a cave. Justin Martyr, 150 AD. He's one of the earliest writers outside the scripture. Origen, Jer Jerome, each believed that this was the case. And then in 335, Emperor Constantine approved the cave that was the traditional site where Jesus was born, in a manger. So the shepherds would put a, like a fence. They'd keep their sheep in in the field with the fence around it, but they always would have a cave that the sheep could go into hide. And so David and his men are inside the cave and, and they're hiding in the dark. There's no electricity. When all of a sudden Saul decides to take a pit stop, all right? And he goes into the cave. The men are all excited. They're like, David, there he is. Go kill him. So you can picture David. He's crawling up with this knife. Saul's not paying attention. He takes off his robe. And then at the last moment, David cuts off a corner of his robe, which leads me to the second thing here, how I get to my sermon, don't cut off corners in the outhouse, okay? So you've heard the expression, don't cut corners. What's that mean when we tell people don't cut corners? Do the right thing, you know, don't cheat, don't whatever. But let me tell you how this expression probably started in the United States. Back in like the late 1800s, 1900s, when he had horse and buggies and antique cars like Earl. Earl, what kind of horse and buggy did you have? What was the first car you're... <laughs> A 35 Chevy. If only you had that today. Okay, so... In the old-fashioned horse and buggies and the old-fashioned cars, do you remember they had like big tires, big wheels? So in the towns, they started putting curbs in on the streets. Well, if, when you were driving your horse and buggy or car and you cut the corner too sharp, 
those big wheels would get caught in the curb because they wouldn't go up over it and it would flip your carriage or your car on its side. And so that's where the expression came from, don't cut corners. It was parents talking to their kids who were driving the horse and buggy and the parents go, don't cut the corner or you're going to flip us. Okay. So, but I think this expression even came earlier when David cut the corner of Saul's robe in the outhouse of that cave. And when he did it, we read that David was conscience-stricken. Verse 9, after he cuts it, he feels so guilty for cutting, just even taking that much revenge on Saul. And your conscience is that part of your, it's what God gives every person that experiences mental anguish and feelings of guilt when we violate it. Conscience serves as a referee which helps us to view life situations in a more ethical light. Thus, judging, determining that some actions are right and some are wrong. And I know I have, we all have a conscience and I'll say something, I'll do something, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, why did I say that? I, I need a call, I need to apologize, I need to get it right, I did something I should have done. That's your conscience. You can sear your conscience, by the way, where you can like iron it out so it spiritually so it no longer works oh yeah let me go back to this for a second whoops sorry so you know you seared your conscience when you work a business and you rip up other people off and you don't even feel guilty any, anymore as a christian that means you've seared your conscience or or a non-christian as well you refuse to apologize to those who have sinned against you when you hurt and continue to hurt innocent people and it doesn't bother you You've seared your conscience. The 45, by the way, is I decided to look up how, just how many wars are there taking place in the world today? Wars. So, okay, we know about Ukraine and Russia, and now we know about Israel and Hamas, but I was like, well, how many wars are there? And there are 45 wars going on between countries. 45. I'm like, what evil, sinful people we are. In 2023, there's at least probably 90 nations at war against each other that hate. It's like, wow. When, when will the Lord come back? So let's read on. So David feels bad about cutting the corner of his robe off, and he, he lets Saul go. In verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? I am not trying to kill you, King Saul. Do not listen to those people that are telling you, telling you that. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, and he literally is his father-in-law. See my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. 
See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, I want you to look at this old saying because it's a new saying too. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. In other words, King Saul, you know, if I killed you, if I murdered you, then I would realize that I have stooped to being just as evil and rotten as you are trying to kill me. From evil doers come evil deeds. King Saul, now you realize I could have killed you, but I'm not killing you because I'm a follower of God. I follow God, and I'm not to murder. I am not going to do this. So this verse, this old saying, from evil doers come evil deeds. From a, there's an old saying, from a bad raven comes a bad egg. Or the King James wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7, 17. A good tree produces good fruit. And a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. David's like, I walk with the Lord. How, why would I murder someone? A bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And that's what David is saying to King Saul. I could have killed you, but you see, I walk with the Lord. Evil deeds come from an evil person, but I, I am trying to live for God, and I'm not going to murder you. Now, this truth is very hard for Christians to carry out. There is a lot of pleasure in taking revenge. And I'll go over that in a second here. This is a, a high level of, of discipleship with the Lord. And I know that only 10% of you, if I was lucky, would even follow this. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Boy, don't we see this? <laughs> but I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not e are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's why most Christians would never do this, because I don't know how many Christians shoot for you know, godly perfection. By the way, I, this is the sermon. This is the very next chapter in the Bible that is just there. You know, I didn't make this up like want to preach on this, especially with what's going on in the world today. Romans chapter 12, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Do not repay anyone for evil. Evil for evil. That's exactly what David is saying in the old saying. You know, from... Evil comes evil, and I, so I cannot murder you. I'm not going to stoop and become, you know, evil in order to, to get revenge on the evil you did to me. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. It, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. That's what David's saying. You know what? I'm not going to take revenge. I was, going to, I was slipping down with my knife. I was going to cut your throat. But then I, you know, I, I cut the cord. I even feel guilty about that because I know I don't want to be evil. I don't want to take revenge. I'm going to let God, David says, Saul, I'm going to let God take the revenge, not me. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. As it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I would love to tell these 45 nations, people hate each other, hate each other. I would love to tell one of them, you never overcome evil with evil. I know, you overcome evil with good. So let's read on. Verse 14. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. He's trusting the Lord to take care of it. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. That's called the heaping burning coals on his head. That's called the conviction that, you know, you're doing good to your enemy. He knows you're doing good to them. He knows he doesn't deserve it or she. And you're heaping burning coals of conviction. Saul is like, ah, oh, you should have killed me. I'm trying to kill you. You didn't kill me. I mean, just weeping, crying, the, the coals of conviction. Verse 17, you are more righteous than I. As opposed to saying, you're actually just as wicked as I am. No. You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my fa father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went to the stronghold. They go back to the cave of Adullam. Wow, that brought th this battle kind of to an end. When one side showed goodness, instead of returning evil for evil... One side showed goodness, brought terrible conviction, and it ended. Hmm. Um, here's a powerful verse. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil. Or insult with insult. On the contrary... Hey! Okay. Repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called as believers so that you may inherit a blessing. 
That's what God does with us. We're the enemies of God. We treat God very badly, but God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, and God is always being kind to us, even though we don't deserve it. It would be easy for, there are many gods, I think, out there that are gods of revenge. As soon as, but, but not, not our God. God. Our God is not evil. He doesn't, even though we're evil towards him, he is not evil towards us. So, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you recall, so you may inherit a blessing. So, I'm, I want to tell you a story here about the, uh, a genie. So, there was a husband and wife, messy divorce, and the, the ex-wife is going through the cupboard, and she sees a, a a lamp, and she rubs it, and a, a genie comes out. Now, by the way, I'm making this story up for those that may not know this. Okay. Um, but I want you to hear this story because I'll apply it. So the genie comes out, and, and the genie says, you know what? This lamp used to be owned by you and your ex-husband, and so whatever you get, your ex-husband gets twice as much. So the genie says, what would you like for your first wish? And the wife goes, I would like... $10 million. Boom, gets $10 million, and the ex-husband gets $20 million. Ooh, she's like, ah. So what would, would be your second wish? And the wife went, I would like a large mansion in Cranberry. Boom, large mansion in Cranberry. But the husband gets twice the house in Mars. Okay. I'm, I'm on Mars' side for today, okay? For the third wish, what's your third wish? The wife says, I would like to be walking down the streets where a mugger beats me half to death. Okay. Now, that's the traditional way this ends. However, I read another one, another ending, which is the wife goes... I would like to be pregnant and deliver twins. So I'll let you figure that one out. So let me illustrate something with you about the truth of this passage. And I'm going to use money. However, um, and this is just illustrative purposes, it's, there's really, it, the way the Lord really does this is usually in the spiritual realm. But just so you understand this um, with money, to, it, it's just easier to understand. Let's say you're in business with a partner, and, and your partner rips off you and the company $200, okay? He, your partner thinks he's gotten away with it, but you, you know, you're checking the books, and you see that your partner just ripped you off 200 bucks. Now, I know. You, so option A is evil with evil, insult with insult. Take revenge. So one way is to go, I caught you. You stole $200 from me. And now you're going to pay back. And um, you're going to pay me back twice as much. We never, 
We never want just the payback of the $200. When you're doing revenge, you want the other person to suffer, to hurt even more than, you know, so you, you kill 10, I'm going to kill 20. You, you know, so revenge is you're going to pay back and more. So you hurt and suffer. So I caught you, you stole $200, you owe me $400 back. Okay. So now your partner is like, I know I was bad, but boy, that Christian is even way worse than I am. I mean, he's getting the 200, he wants more, he's... Okay, now here's option B. Your partner rips 200 bucks off of you and you go, hmm, I'm going to repay this evil with a blessing. You know what? I wonder why he needs the $200. I think he must be struggling financially. So you go up to your partner and you don't even bring up the 200 and you go, you know what? I just, uh, the Lord has led me to bless you. And I have, I, I, I went to the bank today and the Lord just said to give you $200 in cash. I don't know why, but I, I just want to give you $200 to, to bless your life. Now, suddenly, that partner is feeling the coals of conviction come upon him. As the partner goes, oh man, I ripped him off and, I, and he's a Christian and I stole it. And then he blesses me with $200 more. I am a, I'm a loser and I, you know, I wish I was a Christian and I'm evil and they're good. And Okay, now you do that. This is where the genie part comes in. Then it says God goes, this is what you were called to do, to be Christ-like so that you may inherit a blessing. And now suddenly God brings in this great commission to you and it's $4,000. $4,000 to you. Because God saw how you didn't take revenge, you gave a blessing, and God says, you're going to inherit a blessing now. And when God blesses you, wow! Wow! So the gospel is foreshadowed in this whole story. You know me, I see the gospel in every chapter of the Bible. <laughs> Old Testament or New Testament, it's all the same story over and over again. So let's look at the gospel. So verse 8, or verse 9, I guess. Verse 9, so David says to Saul, David represents the Lord. The Lord is actually related to David <laughs> down through to Mary, um, that's Jesus gets his human nature from the lineage of David. So David says to Saul, and Saul represents the world. Saul represents lost people. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? So I say to everyone, why do you listen to the world that tells you that Jesus is bent on harming you? Jesus is not against you. He is for you. Jesus said himself, I didn't come to condemn people. We're already condemned by our own sin. We're already going to reap our own consequences. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn. I came to save people, to go to the cross and take your sin. I'm for you. I want to bless your life. I want to help you. I want you to get to heaven. Do not listen to the false prophets out there that tell you that Jesus is somehow horrible and awful. He is not. Do not listen to that. Number two, verse 11. 
David says, see, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut it off. See, there's nothing in my hand to indicate I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Jesus never wronged anyone, and yet the religious were hunting him down to take his life. Jesus, you know, every politician, if you do enough research, you can find something that they've done. But no matter how much people research Jesus, you can't find anywhere where he wronged anyone. He only came to bless and to love and to encourage. And so Jesus has done nothing wrong to you. Number three, verse 14. David says, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? So David is taking a very humbling stance by calling himself, I'm just a dead dog. I'm just a flea. I'm a nobody. Why are you, why are you coming against me? Now, we know that in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus says he humbled himself. He was in glory with the Father. He humbled himself and became a man. And then humbled himself and became a servant. And humbled himself to become a dead Savior on a cross for our sins. But even more than that, in Psalm 22... Psalm 22 is all about Jesus going to the cross. And we believe that Jesus actually quotes because he quotes parts of Psalm 22 out loud that we have recorded in Scripture. But I want you to see what Jesus says. Here's Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish as he becomes sin for us. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And I can go on. But I want you to notice that when Jesus is on the cross, crying out to the Father, I am a worm. Well, that's humility. He's, he's becoming sin. He's a worm in everyone's eyes that's putting him on the cross. Let's see, verse 16 to 17, number four. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept out loud. You are more righteous than I. He said, you have treated me well, but I treated you badly. Listen, Jesus is more righteous than any of us. We are all sinners, but there is not a single sin that Jesus ever committed. And we treat God horrible, but Jesus treats us well. Verse 20. Number five, Saul says to David, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. I know Jesus is the only righteous, perfect one. He is perfectly good and loving. And I know and I'm declaring to all of you that someday Jesus is going to be king in Israel. He's going to set up his kingdom on this earth, and he's going to reign from Jerusalem in Israel. So just say, you can't claim you never heard this. He's coming back, and he's going to be king. He's the king in all of our hearts, but someday he'll be king on the earth. Verse 21 is Saul's prayer of salvation, in a sense. Verse 21, Saul says, 
First, he acknowledges, you are going to be King David. I see that now. You're more righteous than I am. You are so good. You don't re- you're not evilly motivated. You're good motivated. You spare my life. Jesus wants to spare us from hell. I know the kingdom is going to, you, the kingdom's going to you. Here's my prayer, verse 21. David, swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my, what? Wipe out my, his name from my father's family. See, in, in Bible times, and you have to understand, your name represents you, your significance, who you are, your personality, your whole person. And what Saul is saying is, David, I know you're going to be king. Please, re- it's the prayer of the thief on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Re- Saul saying, don't wipe out my name, who I am. Protect when you're king, may your goodness, even though I don't deserve it, may your goodness protect my being my personhood. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Saul represents all the people that come to an altar and pray the prayer of salvation and leave the door and don't follow Jesus at all. Because in two chapters later, Saul's out to kill David again. Okay? So it represents all the people. Jesus talked about the sower. And some people seem to accept the word with gladness, seem to give their heart to Jesus, but as soon as they head out the door of the church, they're like, phew, I'm glad I'm out of that church. I'm not following Jesus. But I I do want you to understand that he is giving some truth, and the truth is, if you give your heart to Jesus, your personhood, you're going to get a new resurrected body, but you as a person, your name, who you are, goes on for all eternity. And you will have... amazing experiences you'll have new memories you'll have new adventures and as i say we can go a billion years and you can say to god wow i i can't believe all the sports that you have created that we've learned to play i can't believe all that i've learned and all the planets i have visited and all the experiences of singing and worship and instruments that have been created so in a billion years god do you have anything left And God laughs and says, you know nothing. It's a speck in all eternity because I'm an eternal God. I can go on forever creating new songs and new instruments and new adventures and new planets and new situations. You will never exhaust me because I'm infinitely able to keep going. But the lost go to hell. And they do not get to experience anything new for the rest of their lives. And over time, they will be totally forgotten. And that's what Saul is praying. Please don't wipe my name out, who I am. The wicked will be totally forgotten. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The enemy, Psalm 9, 6, the enemy is finished. Their time is up. Their cities will lie in ruin forever. All memory of them is gone. So, for instance, if I ask you, who who would like to be my victim? Steve, Steve, I'm sorry. You stand up. I want you to name to me all the, and you can't use people that are your enemies today. (laughs) I want you to name to me all the evil people of the past that you remember in the world. 
Huh? <laughs> Adolf Hitler? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no, in your mind, tell me how many evil people you know from history. Stalin? Stalin? Saddam Hussein. Yeah, you did better than I did. I only came up with one. So, yeah, you got three. So I want us all to go one million years into the future. Do you think we'll remember them? No, I don't think so. Their name rots away. The memory of them will be gone. We still, believers, we are still going to be making new memories. We're going to know each other. We're going to be growing for all eternity. But the people that are lost, this is the most horrible thing to realize that you, over time, because you rejected Jesus Christ, you just go into infinitely lost. No one is going to remember you. Even the people that were the worst people in the world eventually will be just, their memory will be gone. They'll be alive. They'll be suffering. But no one's going to remember them. A billion years, whatever you want to do. So, I I know i got to close. If you give your heart to Jesus Christ, you connect with God, and, and your personhood, you will experience what Jesus calls the abundant life, not only now, but you will experience the most amazing abundant life for all eternity. You will never be forgotten by God. You're you're not going to be forgotten as a person. You are significant. You are wonderfully made. And and I don't know why you would want to reject God and go, I'm not interested in God. I don't believe in God. I don't. What a mistake. Give your heart to Jesus Christ. And, and find who you really are. That you will find when God comes into you, you'll discover how God has created all of you to be wonderfully gifted. So every one of you is a unique piece of artwork, uniquely created. And when you plug into God, and wait, wait till you see what God has for you in all eternity. Let's bow our heads. If you're here this morning and, and you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, and... <laughs> You are, I can't share with you how significant you are and how special you are, so special that Jesus Christ went to the cross not to condemn you, but to pay for your sins so that you can have the forgiveness of your sins and you can be free from your sins when you die and even begin to get free of your sins now. And then you can live for all eternity with the Lord. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud, and I invite you to pray along with me and and find your true identity in Jesus Christ and find what life is all about with a relationship with God. You pray silently, I'll pray out loud. Lord Jesus, you are more righteous than I am because I am a sinner. You are the son of God. Thank you for going to the cross, taking my sins upon yourself and suffering hell for the hell I deserve. I receive by faith, by believing, your salvation for my soul.
I pray you would come into my heart to walk with me, talk with me. I want to live with you for all eternity in heaven. I open my life to you to be a believer. Thank you for saving my soul. And may you move upon me for me to discover how wonderful you have created me. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer with me to give your heart to the Lord, I'd like you to just slip up your hand and after I see it put down, say, Pastor, I prayed that to ask Jesus into my heart. Just slip your hand up and after I see you, put it down. Anyone here this morning? Anyone? Okay. Father, um, I, I had a feeling that everyone was a believer here this morning already. But I pray, Lord, for those that are online. Uh, I know this month probably over 600 families and individuals will watch this. And I pray that if there are any that are watching that and have prayed that prayer that you would give them the assurance of their salvation, that it would be real, that they would make the commitment, that they would verbally share with people that Jesus is their Savior and Lord and their coming King. Father, may you bless all of us. Help us, Lord, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And Lord, I know it's difficult. Help us when people cut us off to bless them, that the Lord will help them to become better drivers. And then they'll give their heart to Jesus. So help us to bless those that come into our life that challenge us and say things that hurt us um, by your spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand.